So, um, after the general introduction to our new series of talks that David gave us last week, we're now starting our journey properly um, through the Gospel of John. And the passage we're looking at today is John chapter 1 and the first 18 verses. And if you've looked at the uh, programme, you'll know the title of our subject today uh, is taken from verse 14, the word became flesh. For many people, this is a very familiar um, passage, but I think the problem we all have with familiarity is that it, it can cause us to overlook the, uh, the finer details sometimes, and yet it's in the detail where we often find the, uh, the greatest wows. Uh, and one of the advantages of being asked to talk to others about a Bible passage, as I've been asked to do today, um, is that it really encourages us to, to look deeper and to think more carefully about what God's Word is, is saying to us, what God wants us to know. So, a little tip that you might like to try with your own Bible reading is to think about how you might share the highlights of a passage that you've read with, with someone else. Um, make a few notes as you go um, through as what you might share and, and even how you might say it. Even, even write yourself your own little mini-sermon. Um, you, you might share it with no one, but in so doing you might find that uh, with God's help that the passage becomes richer and more memorable than it ever did before. And uh, that, I think, was my experience as I prepared to give this talk today. John starts with some slightly cryptic language before revealing that he's actually referring to the Lord Jesus. Jesus was the light coming into the world and he was the word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But this passage isn't just about Jesus coming into the world, it's so much more than that. And one of the things that I hadn't really noticed before or at least haven't appreciated as much as I think I do now, is how much this passage tells us about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And, and really that's what I'd like to, to focus on um, today. It, the title of the subject is the word becoming flesh, but I think that becomes more meaningful to us when we think about who Jesus is and we think about his greatness. The miracle of the incarnation becomes more than just a biological miracle. It becomes the miracle that God in his greatness became a human being. So I want to think about the greatness of his eternal being. I want to think about the greatness of his relationship with the Father. The greatness of his deity. His greatness in creation. The greatness of his love and the greatness of his grace. And they're all in this um, passage. Now, each one of them could take a whole talk on its own, even a whole series of talks. So just in case you thought when I gave you that list of things I'm going to talk about, we'll, we'll be lucky to get home before tea time. Um, I, I'm only going to touch on each one of them. I hope you don't mind me, me doing that. But hopefully it will whet your appetite to maybe dig deeper in your own private reading, or at the very least next time you come back to this passage, maybe it will have given you a, a slightly um, different perspective on it. Let's start. Um, we're going to read just the first three verses um, to start off with, and then I'll say something about those. 
So John chapter 1, reading from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the first subheading um, is the greatness of his eternal being. In the beginning was the word. We really struggle with infinite things, don't we? Um, because we have finite minds. Jesus was there in the beginning, it says. But when was that? Was it the, the beginning of this earth? Was it the beginning of the universe, if that came earlier? Or does it mean the beginning of God? Well, it certainly doesn't mean the latter. And actually, it, it doesn't even mean the other two either, because John isn't actually referring to the beginning of anything. In the original Greek language that the New Testament was um, written in, the word was is in the imperfect tense. Now, I'm not an expert in, in language, but the only thing we need to know about that is that we can legitimately insert the word continuing into that passage. So in the beginning, the word was continuing and the word continued to be with God and the word continued to be God. So John isn't pointing us back to a beginning. He's just saying that whatever you think of as a beginning, Jesus pre-existed it. He has always been. As Colossians 1 and 17 says, he is before all things. Now that same Greek tense is used throughout verses 1 and 2. So the next thing we'll talk about is the greatness of his relationship with the Father. As I just said in the beginning, he continued to be with God. So that relationship that the Lord Jesus had with the Father had no beginning. It was and is eternal. But we get more in this verse than just the longevity of his relationship. Because we also get a hint about the quality of the relationship. Because a more literal translation of that verse um, is that it's more than just he was continually with God, but that he was continually towards God. Father and Son, in a sense, face to face for all eternity. So it's no surprise, is it, that God the Father should declare from heaven on that occasion of the transfiguration and also at the Lord's baptism, this is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. An eternal love and an eternity of being well pleased with his Son as they were face to face. And no surprise, therefore, that Jesus should say in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. They are so close, so united, that although they have separate identities, we know that, don't we, along with the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead, they are also one. Which, of course, we also see in verse 1 of our passage today. He was with God and he is God. 
which brings us on to talk about the greatness of his deity. Um, he is and always was God. He continued to be with God and he continued to be God. Or as Hebrews 1 puts it, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Not similar, not even close, but the exact representation of his being. In John chapter 8, uh, verse 58, we read that Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. And that was clearly a claim to deity, wasn't it? Uh, which is why the Jews wanted to kill him for saying it. Uh, they thought that um, it was blasphemy, because only God had ever used that, that title, I am. But it was simply a statement of truth. Jesus is the I am because he is eternal and he is God. Colossians 1, it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And later on in Colossians 1, it says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So, the greatness of his deity. Colossians 1 also talks about his greatness in creation. Um, just like um, John mentions in verse 3. Creation. We know, don't we, from Genesis 1, verse 1, um, that in the beginning, God, plural, created the heavens and the earth. The Bible doesn't tell us the exact mechanism, uh, or process, or, or time scale. You know, it talks about seven days of creation, but there's lots of debate about how long each of those days of creation were. Um, so we're not told a lot of things about creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is not meant to be a science textbook. Um, but we are told, and this is the purpose of Genesis chapter 1, very clearly that God is the creator of everything. Now that conflicts, doesn't it, with the theories which say that everything came into being by accident over a long period of time. To be clear, the Bible isn't in conflict with the science behind the theories, uh, if it's good science. After all, God created the science. Uh, the conflict arises in the way many people interpret the findings of the science, especially if they don't believe in God in the first place. With faith, we can reconcile the findings of science with the claims of the Bible. We can do that, although the challenge for both Christian and non-Christian scientists is to understand what the Bible doesn't say as much as what it does say, and likewise to understand what the science doesn't prove as much as what it, it does prove. For those of us who are not experts in any particular science, and especially the um, sciences relevant to this particular subject uh, matter, I think we can place some reliance in the knowledge that many great scientists are also Christians. But we can place total reliance in the divine origin of scripture. In other words, this wasn't John's idea to write about the Lord Jesus as the creator in verse three. He was led by the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made 
that has been made. Where would John get an idea like that? He wasn't a scientist, he, wasn't a, he didn't have a big telescope looking at the universe, he wasn't exploring these things, but he was led to write this down. And likewise, the Apostle Paul, he was a, a, he was a, he was a clever guy, wasn't he? He was an academic, but not in, not in this field. And yet, he wrote in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we're told about the prophets, they wrote things from God that they didn't understand. I suspect Paul was doing the same here, writing things led by the Holy Spirit that truly he was just, uh, yeah, couldn't get his head round. But he wrote it down faithfully because that's what God told him to write. You know, the size of the known universe is absolutely mind-boggling. I was going to bring some um, numbers today, but thought, that's yeah, just pointless. <laughs> It takes ages to actually say them before you get, you get to the point of realising that practically the universe is as incomprehensible as eternity itself. And not just the, macro, the macroism, the, the, the scale, the huge scale of the universe, but also the microcosm as well. That's mind-boggling. If you, if you look into anything to do with the human body, for example, although you can choose pretty much any living thing, how it functions, how it's made up of literally trillions of cells um, and microorganisms and the numerous things in the body that scientists really have no idea why they're there or, or, or how they work. Um, we, we just get a little idea of the scale and the microscopic detail and the wonder of creation. It's something which is absolutely unfathomable and yet he also knows us intimately. He knows us by name. He knows everything we do. He knows every thought in our minds. And as he said in Matthew 10 verse 30, even the hairs on our heads are all numbered. That's not so impressive with me. I mean, I could probably number the hairs on my head quite easily, but <laughs> there was a time when I had a lot more, and the Lord Jesus knew exactly how many, and exactly the same with you. I mean, he's given a little example there, I think, for the crowds, but when you think about the detail, and you think of what Psalm 139 says about him knowing even our thoughts, you can imagine that actually the hairs on our head are probably quite easy compared with everything else. So verse 3 is very short, but it's pointing us to worship him for the greatness of his creation. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 8 and 6 says. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. He's not only the creator, he's the one who sustains the creation. So that's his greatness in creation, briefly. The next section introduces us to the greatness of God's love. Let's read from verse 4 down to verse 13. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. 
He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The greatness of God's love. If we just refer back to verse 1 briefly, remember that one of the names of Jesus is the Word. And I've not really said much about that yet. He is the Word. Why is that? It's because, I suggest, um, of his eternal longing to communicate with us, to reveal himself to us, to have a relationship with us. It's in the nature of love, isn't it, to express itself, and that's why Jesus is the Word. Because of love, he wants to talk to us. <coughs> Of course, we use words um, to express many other things which have got nothing to do with love and sometimes quite the opposite. But when we read the things that, that God has said, that Jesus has said, the one who loved us and chose us before the creation of the earth, Ephesians 1 and 4, we can see a great eternal love, can't we? And then as we read in verses 4 to 13, John then um, uses the metaphor of light. Jesus was a light coming into the world. And there's not nearly enough time to, to talk about that, but I just want to highlight a few things from that section which actually tell us more about the greatness of his love. In verses 4 to 5, we see the light being revealed. And it's referring to spiritual life, isn't it? You know that, yeah? Spiritual life. Jesus came to bring life to a dark, fallen world. He came to give us life. Why, why would he do that if it was not for love? Verse 4, again, uh, John said that Jesus brought life for all mankind. Uh, verse 9 talks about the light being for everyone. So, a little hint here about the universal universal nature of the gospel that his love extends to all all mankind to everyone to every single one of us no matter who we are or what we've done he loves each and every one of us and then where it says that the light shines in the darkness the tense of that word if i just might refer to tenses one more time um, the tense of that word means that it continues to shine so even now, the Lord Jesus is continually reaching out into the darkness of this fallen world to darken hearts with the light of the gospel, the light of life, the expression of his love and longing for us. And then we get to verses 10 to 11. And despite all the evidence in the Old Testament scriptures which pointed to the Lord Jesus, um, and uh, Romans 1 talks about the evidence in, in nature, in creation itself, that leave people without any excuse for not believing in God. 
uh, we have evidence there. And Romans 2 talks about the evidence in, term, in, in terms of our God-given conscience. So there's evidence in the scriptures, evidence in nature, evidence in our consciences. Despite all that evidence, we have this absurd reality that the one who created everything comes into the world and we don't recognise him. And worse than that, not only do, does he not get recognised, but he gets rejected. His light and his love rejected. And yet, and this is the point, he still went to the cross. And he still continues to reach out to hearts that continue to reject him. Is that not the hallmark of amazing love? And then finally, uh, in verse 12, his longing was that we become children of God. There's a lovely verse in the first epistle of John, um, chapter 3, verse 1. It's referring to the Father's love, um, but I hope you've seen from what I said earlier that the Father's love is the same as the, as the love of the Lord Jesus. It says, uh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are if we believed in the Lord Jesus and received him as our saviour. You know, God, Jesus, wants more than just to fill heaven with saved souls. He didn't go to the cross to buy himself a population. He wants to adopt us into his family. Another demonstration of the greatness of his love for each one of us. He wants us in his family. He wants to share things with us. He wants to be with us forever. Greatness of his love. Finally, the greatness of his grace. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then if we just miss out the bit in, in, in um, brackets um, about John the Baptist and go down to verse 16. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So in verse 14, John says that we've received, we have seen his glory. I don't think he was referring to that extraordinary occasion when he, along with Peter and, and James, saw the transfigured um, Lord Jesus, when they saw his face shining like the sun and his clothes as white as, as light itself. Um, in fact, strangely, John's Gospel, only three of the apostles, um, saw that amazing sight. John's Gospel doesn't even mention it um, in detail. The other three Gospels do. Um, I guess that it was at least part of John's thinking. Um, you couldn't forget something like that, could you? But I think John's focus here is the incarnation. It's the word becoming flesh and the divine qualities that he associates with that, the glory that they all saw, not just the three of them on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, uh, the glory they all saw in his life was grace and truth. 
we have various definitions for the word grace, don't we? Um, short one, undeserved favour. Um, the longer one that people like, because it's easier to remember, because it follows the letters of the word uh, of the word grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that sits well with 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, which says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We thought briefly about the, the greatness of God's love, and I actually prefer a more simple definition of, of grace. Um, just me, but this is uh, the, the definition I, I, I like about grace, that it is God's love coming to sinners. God's love coming to sinners. And we can see in verse 16 that there is an abundance of that grace for you and me. Verse 16 again says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Or some versions, your version might say, grace upon grace. I think the NIV is clearer Grace in place of grace already given. What does that mean? In other words, we receive amazing grace at one stage of our life or in one particular situation. And then more grace follows. And then more grace again. And more and more and more. It reminds me of the little chorus um, I used to sing at, um, at Sunday school. Um, and for some reason, I don't know whether it's because of the actions or, or, or whatever, but we never, we never sang it when we, got up, when, 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 when we moved up to the bigger classes, the older classes in Sunday school. It was like this, this, this chorus was only for little children. And yet the truth behind it is exactly what John is talking about here. Running over, running over, my cup is full and running over. We could read verse 16 like this. Out of his fullness we have all received one blessing after another. God's grace to us is seen in our salvation, isn't it? Ephesians 2 makes that clear. But it's also in our daily walk as we seek with all of our weaknesses and failings to, to follow Jesus. Romans 6 verse 1 shows us that the more we need grace, the more it is given. Although it also says that we shouldn't take advantage of that. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, as Paul um, talks about a particular difficulty that he had, uh, it tells us that when we run into difficulties in life, whatever they are, his grace is sufficient for us. Now what that means in your life and mine might be different, depending on the, the circumstances. Uh, when we sin, we may appreciate grace in the patience of God and his ongoing forgiveness. If we doubt, grace may come in the reassurance of God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If life gets difficult with stress or financial worries or loneliness or bereavement or health issues or relationship problems or bad neighbours or whatever it is, God can give the strength <coughs> and the courage and the wisdom and the hope to carry on. All expressions of his grace. 
I grew up with that definition of grace being undeserved um, favour, I guess, just before I came to Manchester. I don't think I heard about God's riches at Christ's expense until I came here. So I always grew up with that undeserved favour, and it, and it absolutely is undeserved favour. But that phrase to me sounds a little bit like grace is just God giving handouts. And um, I think, as I said, it's so much more than that. Uh, which is why, uh, as I've uh, indicated, I prefer that simpler definition. God's love coming to sinners, a love which knows no limits. Now before I finish on the last verse um, in the passage, let's just remind ourselves, quick summary of the things that we've thought about concerning the Lord Jesus, the word who became flesh. We've thought about the greatness of his eternal being. He pre-existed everything. He has no beginning. He always was, he always is, he always will be. We thought about the greatness of his relationship with the Father, an eternal face-to-face -face relationship, closer than we can possibly imagine. We thought about the greatness of his deity. As John put it in verse 1 and verse 18, he is God. And just about everything that we can say about the Father is also true of the Son. We thought about his greatness in creation. Uh, we've always known from Genesis 1 that God, plural, created everything. But the verses we've thought about really present Jesus as being the primary agent of the Godhead in creation. He is our creator. And from the little that we know and understand about the creation, the things that God has made, we, we see a little of his greatness, don't we? We thought about the greatness of his love, an eternal love, a love which despite rejection was willing to sacrifice everything, a love which longs after every sinner, hoping that we'll receive him and be with him forever, a love which stands at the door and knocks, hoping that not just the unsaved, but in the context of the passage, as you know, the saved, us, that we'll open the doors of our hearts and let him in. We thought about the greatness of his grace. The expression of that great love is great grace. A grace we experience not just at the point we get saved, but a grace that we can know every single day of our lives. And a grace which has got so much more to give when we finally get to the place that he is preparing for us. So we've thought about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a, in a variety of different ways, uh, and there's so much more in the passage um, as well um, that we could have looked at, but I'm just going to finish now with verse 18, which reminds us again that everything that we read about the greatness of God uh, elsewhere in the scriptures is also true of the Lord Jesus. For it says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known.